So you can stand now and open your Bibles as you stand. Luke chapter 8. I want to read a portion of our text for this morning with you. Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing around you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. The woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantaneously healed. Then he said to her, daughter, go. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing these words, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. You can be seated. We live in a world of desperation. Desperation that arises in the context of our lives from many different areas and circumstances. Many people live with desperation in relation to finances. Desperation in relationship to work. Desperation in relationship to relational strife in the context of family, work. Some desperation because of the word cancer. Some because of addiction. Some because of death. Some because of time constraints. Some because of fears. Some because of anxiety. Some because of self-image. Some because of low self-worth. Some because of emotional struggles. Some because they look at the situation in the entire world that we live in and it's not very comforting, is it? And there rises in our hearts a sense of desperation, a need for help that it seems will not come. And that creates a sense of panic, a sense of anxiety, a sense of craving inside of us that we think will never be satisfied. We feel like the troubles of life have become overwhelming. As we've gone through Luke chapter 8, we've looked at a series of miracles that Doug has taken us through. This morning, we come to the last two of the miracles that are recorded in Luke chapter 8. The healing of Jairus' daughter and the healing of a woman who had the issue of blood. The purpose of all of these miracles is not simply to bring temporary relief of pain. And sadly, that's what most of us tend to settle for, don't we? Not for a transformed life. But just get me out of my current desperation, then I'll move on through my life and I'll be happy. But then life happens again, right? And the circumstances continue to pull at us and steal hope and foment within us a sense of desperation that we fear we may never be able to overcome. Well, I think this morning we look at the stories of two individuals 
And both of them involve families at some level. Individuals who were facing desperate situations that they could not control. Varying degrees of severity are revealed in the stories. One woman has a chronic illness that she's had for 12 years. And then there's a child, fascinatingly, who is about 12 years old. But the duration of the circumstance is different, and the nature of the circumstance is different. For the little girl, she is dying. She's on her deathbed. The other woman involved in the story, the one with the issue of hemorrhaging, bleeding, has dealt with this situation for 12 years. It's apparently at some level survivable, but profoundly embarrassing. It has caused her to become an outcast in her culture. She's wrestling with the pressure. And in this account that's recorded for us, we find that a man named Jarius comes to Jesus. His daughter is the one who is sick in bed with something that appears to be certainly terminal. And we find out later in this story that it, in fact, is. His story is interesting. He's the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum, which if you're familiar with the New Testament teaching at all, you know that Capernaum is the beachhead of Christ's public ministry in the north, in the region of Galilee, on the sea, where many of his miracles are conducted. He's a respected leader in that town. He organizes worship every Sunday in a town that is profoundly culturally Jewish. He's a man of high prominence. And if you study through the Gospels, you'll find that people of high prominence did not have high regard for Christ. The typical response of of the religious aristocracy to Jesus was what? Rejection and criticism. Ridicule, resentment, and telling of lies defaming his character. This man faces a circumstance that changes his orientation towards Jesus. Now, isn't that the way it often works? God allows our circumstances to change, and those circumstances changing cause us to realize that we are not all that we thought we were. And so suddenly you find a leader in the synagogue, a leader in his hometown, falling at the feet of Jesus, the Bible says here, and he is pleading with Christ. A sense of desperation. He's turned to Christ because nothing else has worked. And he goes to Christ because he thinks that some of the things that he has heard about Jesus in his town of Capernaum are probably true. Meaning there were too many accounts for it all to be lies. And sometimes I like to think this way. If 50% of what that person's saying about that person is true, it's bad or it's good, right? When there's a lot of information. And so for Jarius, it probably works something like this. He realized that his daughter was in a desperate situation, which put him in a terrible position as a father who apparently had deep love for his daughter. So he falls in front of Jesus, the one that had been ridiculed in his hometown, and pleads for him to come to his house. So this sense of trouble, this desperation, has stripped from Jarius all sense of pride, all sense of self-image, all sense of feeling like he has to be anybody. Here's what he knows. I have a need. And I've heard there's a man in town who meets needs. He says, my daughter, about 12, is dying. Now, verse 41 gives us the transition. Jesus begins to move towards the house of Jairus. As he goes, the text in verse 42 says, the crowds almost crushed him. Now, certainly Mark is using hyperbole. He's using a bit of an exaggeration to give you the sense of a circumstance. That this 
crowd around Jesus is so large, it thronged, it teemed around him. And it was pressing in against him. The result of that means something like this. Everybody was touching him. That's the picture you get. People were jostling with him and bumping against him. Try to stay close to the teacher, the miracle worker. They were in love with what he had done. The miracles earlier in chapter 8 clearly have kind of brought up this sense of joy and, and, and if you will, a celebration of the presence of Christ. The leader of the synagogue has come and requested his help. He's going to his house. His daughter is terminally ill. Let's see what he does. So Jesus, with an apparent sense of urgency, begins to move in response to the call of Jairus. While he's going along, there's a woman in the crowd. You'll find in the Gospel of Mark more details of her story. She's a woman who has a hemorrhage of blood that she has battled for 12 years. It's interesting when you go to the Gospel of Mark and read the account, because it says something like this. She suffered a great deal under the care of physicians, had spent all that she had, and was worse off. Ever been through that? When that happens, you get a sense of desperation. You've done everything that you know to do. You've sought all the help that you can possibly seek, and nothing in your life has changed. Introduce Jesus. And apparently this woman has heard enough about Christ that she's somewhat like Jairus, even though she comes from a totally different place than him. She's an outcast. A woman in that culture with that sort of an issue would have been on the outside. Not an insider, but an outsider. And she certainly fit that bill. She was likely filled with shame. We know from Mark 5 that she was bankrupt. She had lost all of her dignity, is unnamed in the text, is unclean and unaided. And folks, in the ancient world, when you got sick, here's what people thought. You're sick because of something you did wrong. For us to come and snuggle with you, as it were, to spend time with you, would bring on us a negative aura. It was that kind of a sense, a very superstitious Judaism, the, the world that Christ came into. So in John chapter 9, when a man shows up blind from birth, what's the question? Well, who sinned, him or his parents? I mean, there always has to be a logical connection between sickness and behavior. Okay, that's, that was the mood. So this woman is clearly ostracized, but she finds herself in the midst of this throng and something comes to her mind. Something, I believe, prompted by the Spirit of God causes her to think that if I get to Jesus and if I can just touch the hem of his garment, my life might change. Not if I get an audience with him, not if I speak to him. If I sneak up behind him and simply touch the hem of his garment, something in my life might change. Here's what I'm going to tell you. That's desperation. That's desperation. That's need that has ripped this woman's world apart and has left her with only one hope. And folks, here's what you're going to find. This is what God will often do in your life. He will take his hands off and let everything fall apart until you realize that he is your only hope. And this desperation that he brings has a purpose. He doesn't let sin, if you're his child particularly, he will not let sin satisfy. It will leave you craving. 
until you finally realize that my only hope is Christ. She thought to herself, Mark 5 says, if I can simply touch the hem of the healer, I will be healed. What an incredible deduction. Here's what we find in the text. She is absolutely correct. When you reach out and lay hold of Christ with that kind of faith, your life will change and your desperation will evaporate. That is powerful. To be so at the bottom that I realize there is only one hope, and that has been true all along. It's just that now, because of all of what desperation has torn away, I can finally see it. And that you don't resent the trouble that's in your life. You begin to embrace it and say, God, teach me through this circumstance who you are. Work in my life in a powerful way. So she tries it. She desperately brushes amongst the people unnoticed through the crowd because she's unclean. Trying to touch a rabbi. Not a way to get points. And it's why she realizes, I'll just sneak up behind. Why? Because what has she experienced through this last 12 years? No contact with the religious establishment. Too far gone, no hope, no help. And when she saw that there was a Savior she could touch, she pursued. But she did it in a way that was shameful, right? I mean, you have to, you, it, it goes in two ways, doesn't it? She certainly doesn't fully understand Jesus because she really understood him. She would go right to his face and say, I have a need. But she does understand something about Jesus, and that is he is the one who alone can change her life. And so she goes, in this weakened faith, in this lack of clarity about the healer, about the rabbi, she gets to the right place. Is that not amazing? Is it, you don't have to come to Christ through certain protocols. You don't have to meet the expectations of certain religious establishments to get help from the healer. You just need to come. The object of your faith is what transforms, not the strength of it, not the depth of it. It's just that you do trust him. And she came with that kind of faith. May we learn from her. Mark 5 says she came up behind and she touched And Mark states it a little more clearly than Luke does, a little more extended. He says, immediately she knew her body was healed. Twelve years of pain and suffering and shame and being unnamed and unnoticed and suspected is changed like that. And what does she think? She thinks, well, and you, you can imagine the conflict in her heart. What was her goal? Her goal was to come to Jesus anonymously and leave anonymously and not have to speak. Rita. All right, that's why we ask people to speak. I'm, I'm teasing with you a little bit, but you're right. I do that to people sometimes. But there's a reason. There's a reason. She wants to go away unnoticed. She wants to be a typical American Christian whose faith is private and personal. I'm going to tell you this. If your faith is private and personal, it's not biblical faith. It's not. There is no such thing in Scripture as private, personalized believers. It's always corporate. It's always the redeemed of the Lord saying so. Always. 
So she thinks to herself, 12 years of pain are erased. I'll go and I'll live my life now. I got what I came to get. But here's what's amazing. When you come to Christ in brokenness and you see your sinfulness or you see your need in this picture and you're thinking to yourself, I just need relief from my pain, right? I get this blood issue. If that stops, I'm, I'm like everybody else in the crowd. And the answer is yes, that's true. Folks, here's a simple truth that emerges from this text. When you come to Christ in simple faith to lay hold of his miraculous power to change your life, whether it be physical or spiritual, he does not intend for you simply to receive showers of blessings as I used to sing as a kid. He desires a relationship with you. This woman comes and touches, says, I'll get from the healer what I can get. Some even, some of the commentators suspect that she was somewhat superstitious. I'll rub against the genie, I'll get what I need, and I'll go. And I'll be fine. And she would have been happy with that. Why? Because that was a somewhat dramatic transformation. But what Jesus wants to do in your life is not a dramatic transformation. He wants to do a radical transformation. He wants to change your entire life. Folks, do you understand this? You can have your hemorrhaging stopped. You can have your physical illness cured and die and go to hell. You can be well, but very sick. My fear for people often is that when blessings come, so does the blindness to the need for a Savior. So what does Jesus do with this woman who wants to sneak away in the crowd? Well, verse 45 and 46, it says this. Jesus sensed that power had gone from him. That's an amazing statement. He knew that something had transpired. Come on. What's Peter's response? Jesus turns around and says, hey, who touched me? And Peter's response is, are you serious? You're in a crowd being jostled by people. They're crushing you. I mean, that's what it felt like for the disciples, and they record the event later. And you're asking, who touched me? Maybe you might want to ask, who didn't touch me? Because everybody was touching him. What was Jesus asking? Who laid hold of me in a way that was different than the crowd following the show or the parade? Folks, there's a big difference between seeking after Jesus with the crowd of people and coming to him like this woman did in faith, knowing he can change my life. But here's the the, the irony of it is, yeah, he'll change your life more than you realize, my dear friend. And so he calls her out, which gives justification to doing this in front of the church. Okay? She came... Here's what the text says, verse 47. She came stunned and trembling. Why? Is that what she wanted? Is that what someone who's lived in shame for their sickness for 12 years wants? To be brought up in front of the church and talk. The answer is no. What did Jesus refuse to let her keep? Jesus refused to let her keep her secrets. Because when you have secrets, you don't have secrets, as one writer has said. Secrets have you. And it's why many people live in prison. Changed but not declaring and breaking the bondage by declaring truth. Jesus calls this woman and says, tell your story. And 
here's what verse 47 says. She came stunned and trembling and told why she had touched him and how she had been healed. That is awesome. He brings her out of the darkness, out of the shadows, and he sets her in a prominent place. And, and when she goes away, here's the cool thing. He says to her, my daughter, go in peace. An outcast that a rabbi would never come near instructs her to come and share her story. And she told of how she had hemorrhaged for 12 years and how she had come to Christ in faith and touched him and been radically transformed. She knew when she touched him that it was done. Is that not beautiful? God does not work in our lives for our personal benefit. God does not work in your life to make your private experience better. He does it to affect change in the world that he's called you to live in. He brings radical transformation so that you can go and say what the Lord has done. The psalmist brings it in this way. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's what baptism is, isn't it? And it's what the Lord's table is. All of them are retellings of what God has done. It's what Christians do. They're so changed by Christ that they can't remain silent about Christ. Most of you know that about 13, 14 years ago, our daughter Rebecca underwent back surgery, about an eight-hour surgery, to correct a sudden onset of scoliosis when anterior and posterior, front and back, opened her up. I love Dr. Thomas Errico. Every time I meet someone who's got a kid with a back issue, you know what I tell them? I tell them about Dr. Thomas Errico, editor of Spine Journal. You know why? He changed my daughter's life. He gave her hope. When Christ touches you, silence is not an option. And Jesus calls out a shy woman out of the darkness, out of the shadows, out of the crowd, and gives her a directive that is so simple. Tell what I've done for you. Well, during this delay, there's another story, isn't there? We're kind of in the middle story. There's another story going on on the outside of Jairus who you almost forget about. Now, what's Peter's response to all this hubbub? Like, really? I mean, if you think in terms of comparison, the difference between the circumstance of the woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years and a girl who's on her deathbed, which one matters more? I mean, if you go into the emergency room, I took my dad in about six months ago, showed up at his house, and my mom's like, your dad's not doing well. Man, I don't like medical stuff, so I'm like, let's get him to the hospital as soon as we can. You got there, and they, they hand you the card. Give, I'll give you your medical card, and, and, then, and then take care of this, and then we'll get that person waiting, and then we'll get to your dad. I about freaked out. As he's having a heart attack. I don't know if he really was or not, but it worked. No. <laughs> He was definitely having heart issues. Okay, but, but in my mind, what was I thinking? Wait, you're that person that has a cut on their arm that is now stopped. You're going to take them ahead? And what would you think naturally in your heart? What would you think? There's a sense of one situation here is more urgent, more acute, and you would think you take care of them first. I mean, I, was done, I went over to the window and I said, he's having a heart attack maybe. I don't know. His jaw hurts. That's not a good sign. I know my mom doesn't hit him. So, and it, this is exactly, in the crowd, what would they be thinking? What would Jarius be thinking? 
I came to you in desperation. My daughter is dying. And you're stopping to take care of someone who has a chronic condition. Fascinating, isn't it? That sense of privilege that we get, that Jesus utterly destroys. And then remedies by his great power. Because that's what happens in this story. So there's first these desperate situations. Then there's dealing with delays. Because for Jarius, he's standing there waiting for this woman to get done her testimony. He's probably thinking, I hope she's not long-winded. <laughs> right? And Peter's sitting there saying, come on, come on, come on. What do, you, what do you mean who touched you? Let's go. We're on an important mission. We're with important people. We're with Jarius, the leader of the synagogue. Let's keep our priorities straight. I don't know what all Peter's thinking, but I know it's irritating him. To the point of Mark and Luke, he speaks up clearly and says, like, really? Someone comes in verse 49 and says, don't bother. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher any more. What's the clear message from that? The clear message from that is there is a consensus amongst people in the world that you and I live in that there are certain things that even God can't handle. There are circumstances that simply cannot be reversed. There are lives that cannot be changed. I've been through this in my life personally, closely enough recently to experience that feeling in my heart. There are some things that flat out simply will never change. And I'm beginning to see that I was wrong. You see, there's a general consensus among people that God is strong, but he's not that strong. He's capable, but he's not that capable. You can trust him, but not that much. Don't get too radical in your faith. The assumption of the, on the part of the crowd, on the part of Peter, on the part of the friend of, the, of Jarius is that delay had led to circumstances that are irreversible. It's too late. Don't bother the teacher. Let him go. What do you love about Jesus? Here's what I love about Jesus. When you reach that point, if he has designed to work in your life, he's coming after you. So he, he immediately, Jarius doesn't say a word. Jesus looks at Jarius and what does he say? Don't be afraid. Believe. He reads him like a book. He reads him like he reads most of us. And the Spirit of God often in desperate situations is whispering into your life to defeat the lies of the evil one. Don't be afraid. And why did he do that? Because he knew that what Jarius had just heard had to be devastating to him. His daughter has died. And Jesus looks at him in the midst of that circumstance and in that new relationship and says to him, don't be afraid. Trust me. Ever feel like that? God allows you to go into circumstances that you would never choose so he could teach you something you could never learn outside of that circumstance. And he looks at you because he sees the fear coming over you. The desperation that this is an irreversible situation. This problem, this struggle, this addiction has gone on far too long for it to ever be resolved. And Jesus says, don't fear. Only believe. Trust me. 
And the thing that we've learned in this text is that you and I have a natural tendency. We have a natural tendency to doubt in circumstances that seem overwhelming. And we tend to want to throw in the towel and just say, you know what? It's never going to change. Secondly, we learn from this that God works on his timetable, not ours. When you get to the end of the story, you're going to see that Jesus is incredibly brilliant and wise in what he's doing. And this, this seeming delay that seems to end in irreversible trouble actually att- announces the glory of God. My pastor used to say when I was growing up that God is seldom early but never late. Start to find a pattern emerging, don't you, in the life of Jesus, that he's always delaying until we're where we need to be in order for him to do what he wants to do. But it's fascinating that along the way, this whole group of the 12 disciples, because in in Luke you find it's Peter speaking, but in Mark you find it's Peter speaking on behalf of the group. All of them are strugglers. All of them are along the way in the journey. All of them facing seasons of desperation. And what is Jesus doing? He's bringing them along to bring them to points of faith through delays, through troubles, through desperation to make them who he wants them to be. People who will change the world. The last thought that emerges in this text is the encounter of God's power and love in and through desperate circumstances and delay. So we see desperate circumstances. We see a divine delay that you would never choose for Jarius until you know the rest of the story. Then he would say, God, do that in me. And gathering God's power and love in and through desperate circumstances and delay, Jesus now comes into the home of Jarius. And when he gets at the home in verse 51 through 53, he finds a crowd of people. What are they doing? They're mourning like only Jewish people can. If you're familiar with the first century, the louder the moaning and mourning, the more respect and love you had for the person who had died. People would actually at times pay mourners to come because that mourning was a sign of respect and love and appreciation. It'd be kind of like busing people into a viewing for your father. Because the more people that come, the more honor is attended to the person. Does that make sense? That's how it was. So they were, they were whooping it up. Jesus is not pleased. Why? Because he sees the end of this story and he realizes that what they're doing is utterly inappropriate. So verse 51 to 53, here's what he says to him. He says... Verse 53, I've got to get my eyes here. It says, when he said to them, stop wailing. And then here's the reason. She is not dead. She's asleep. Now, question, is the girl dead? Yes or no? Yes. She was Lazarus dead? Yes. What did Jesus call it? Sleeping. What is he doing with death when he calls it sleeping? What did he just do? If he calls death sleeping, what did he just do to death? He just, he redefined it. He, he's, he's stealing it of its power, right? He's stripping it. So he's then, stop wailing. Your wailing that you're doing is ridiculous in this setting. Take that, you professional mourners. Okay, stop. 
Well, why should we stop? She's dead. And notice what it says. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. They knew the facts, and that it was irreversible and too late. When Jesus goes into the house, and as you read through the whole text, you'll find here's what he does. He takes Peter, James, and John, who were probably the more preeminent in faith. That's a scary thought, but it's probably true. They were probably the most advanced disciples that Jesus always took with him in these special situations. And he took the parents. Why did he take them? Because he knew that they believed. He knew that they believed. And he said to Jairus, if you believe, you'll see the power of God. You'll see it. He tells the crowd to stop wailing. And then he sits on the bed of this little girl and takes her by the hand. And you're thinking to yourself, what? Well, I mean, in America, when we have healings, what do we have? We have loud music. We have a band playing. We have a show, incantations, phrases. We work it up. And then God works. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus sits on the bed of this little girl, holds her by the hand, and in Aramaic says, Talithi, come. Mark preserves the words, probably because they were so stunning to the original hearers. Little girl, get up. Now, Tim Keller gives this translation, honey, wake up. Now, folks, I don't know if you've thought about this, but when that happens, here's what you find converging, and this is the amazing thing with God, you find the power of God sitting on a bed beside a dead little girl, mom and dad watching, three disciples in desperation, hoping he's got something good, hoping this is a Lazarus kind of day. And what happens? He holds her by the hand, and he says, little girl, honey, wake up. And he reverses the irreversible. The thing that couldn't change, guess what it just did? It changed. Now, if I was Jesus, I wouldn't have said give her something to eat. I would have said get up and run out the front door and tell the mourners they can go home. That's what I would have done. But he gets her up and he gives her something to eat because after the resurrection of Christ, what's the evidence of the fact that it's him? That he's physically risen. He says, give me something to eat. And you'll know I'm alive. You'll know it's not a phantom, it's not a dream, it's not what you want hallucinating, it's a fact, it's real. So what happens? A desperate circumstance, a divine delay for the glory of God, and then a demonstration of power and love merging together, which is exactly what I find at the cross, where the love of Christ meets the power of Christ. And bears the full consequence of my sin. And on the third day he rises again. To show that the irreversible can be reversed. To show that the life that you live that you think can never change. Can change. When my wife and I took our daughter to New York University Hospital. For Dr. Erica to do the surgery on her. I think as a dad I felt for the first time. Something I never wanted to feel. And that was this. I felt my daughter was in a circumstance for the first time that I could do nothing to resolve. Now, that had been true all along, okay? 
I just knew it in a way that was desperate. I remember walking to the recovery room, which at New York University Hospital is like twice the size of this room, and there are tens, scores of beds in that room. It is an amazing place to see. I wanted to do something to kind of relieve my daughter's pain and to kind of get her out of there. And there was nothing I could say, nothing I could do except to give her to God. That's it. And Jesus has never been at the expense of a circumstance that was more than he could handle. He's never attempted something that he couldn't do. So no matter what it is in your life, maybe it's a chronic issue that you think can't change. Maybe it's a death-defying type issue that you just think can never change. In Luke 8, Jesus demonstrates his power in a way that earlier the story of the disciples on the boat He says to the sea, peace, be still. What do the disciples do? They fall on their faces, trembling. We've never seen anything like this. And then they start with the if, then. If he can do that, then he can do this. And in the Gospels, what happens? In this case, you have a story where Jesus starts at the greatest, the raising of this little girl from the dead. And why does he do that? So that you can realize that everything you're facing today is underneath of that in terms of severity and acuity. That whatever you're facing that is causing desperation, he can walk you through it for his glory. Don't be afraid. Only believe. When you come to God in your imperfect faith like the woman came, But in true desperation, realizing that God is all I have. Jesus is all I have. And the Spirit of God is pushing you in that direction. I encourage you this morning, go in great faith and watch God work. Watch God reverse the irreversible. Watch God change things in your life that you think, this has been with me for so long, I can't even imagine life without it. Watch God work. But here's what you have to do. You have to be humble enough to go to him and to plead before him. And to ask him in the humility of your heart to do a work in your life. But you need to do that realizing that he doesn't simply want to change your circumstance. He aims to have a personal relationship with you that will sustain you for the rest of your life. He doesn't want to do miracles only. What does he do at the end of the story? At the end of the story, the last part of the verse is he says to him, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Oh, I hate when that happens. Wait, we can't tell anybody about that? Wait, That's not even fair. It's like a pastor calling in sick and going out and playing golf and getting a hole in one. Who can he tell? (laughs) Right? You just. But don't tell. Come again. (laughs) Why? Why does he do it? In this case, he doesn't do it in every case. Right? Early in Luke 8, the the demoniac of the gathering says, what does Jesus say? He says, Jesus, I want to go with you. Jesus says to him, sometimes. It's more important that you go and talk about me than you come and be with me. Go and tell them everything I've done for you. It will be clear to them that something miraculous has happened, but that's in Gentile territory. In the Jewish territory, Jesus says, this crowd is only going to get worse and distract me from the cross if you keep talking about the big things that I'm doing. And people may begin to think it's only about the big things, which, can I be honest with you, is why I am very nervous about ministries that arise and develop only around 
special events and special workings of God that make it seem like the daily working of God are less important. Because I believe with all my heart, whatever your struggle is today, it's as important as the issue this woman had and is as important to Jesus as the issue that Jairus' daughter had. It's just as important. And the same power that was available for them is available for you. You say, how do you know that? The resurrection of Christ. He entered into your death and defeated it and offers to you life. He says to this lady, your faith, some of the translations, the modern NIV says, has healed you. In the Greek, the word is sozo. It's the word for saved you. Change your life. So what does God do? He lets circumstance come into your life that show you your desperate need so that you will cry out to him in faith so that he can bring you into a relationship. It's not about the miracles, folks. That's why Jesus said, don't, don't talk about that. Talk about me. Talk about me. And love me and honor me and glorify me. Because those acts of God are opportunities for you and I to testify to the grace of God. It's why it's so wonderful when the Hovingham ladies come. It's why it's wonderful Thursday night to go to the banquet and hear testimonies of what? Deliverance. It's wonderful here to the redeemed of the Lord saying so. That the God that we serve can actually change a life permanently. That's the glory of God. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. I would encourage you to call out to Jesus. In the quietness of your heart, to cry out to him and say, Jesus, save me. My issue's this, my issue's that. I don't know what your issue is. But take it to him. In the Old Testament, the Bible says, call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will answer you. So maybe this morning in the quietness of your heart, you need to call out to Jesus. I don't know how long your issue's been around. But I know he aims to fix it when we believe, when we come in honest desperation, acknowledging our sin and trusting in what God can do. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?